Hello and welcome to Nudge, the consumer psychology podcast with me, Phil Agnew. Nudge is a podcast that aims to provide you with valuable insights from the world of behaviour science and consumer psychology. I'll be talking to the world's leading authors, pioneers and researchers in the industry, looking closely at some of their fascinating findings. I'll then condense all of their great work into easy to listen to 20 minute podcasts. You'll learn things like the best way to negotiate a pay rise at work, simple tricks you can use to actually get people to read and reply to your emails, and even negotiation tactics that you can use to put your kids to bed. This week, I was very fortunate to chat to Adrian North. Adrian is head of School of Psychology at Curtin University, and he's had an incredible career analysing how music affects consumers. He's looked at the role music has on purchase behaviour, how radio adverts can be improved by tweaking presenters, and how certain music can change the wine you buy. I started by asking him about the piece of research he did towards the start of his career where he analysed the effect music had on purchasing wine at a local supermarket. Here's the study he set up. podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot podcast network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. So, it, so we, we just borrowed the um, island display of, of literally our local supermarket in the, the wines and spirits section. And on the end there, we just um, had a shelf, oh sorry, four shelves, which showed on one side of the shelf French wines and on the other side of the shelf German wines. And yeah, we again took this model from all these earlier experimental studies we were very careful so for example on each shelf the two wines were basically the same price the supermarket in question had a a scale that it used to um, put on by the price ticket which showed you know shoppers just how sweet versus dry the wine was so we tried to hold that constant and and so on and then on the top deck of, of, of the top shelf of this display we had just a little music player which played either very stereotypically French music or very stereotypically German music. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, we were keen to avoid people being exposed to any sort of marketing messages and any confusing impact that would have. So for our stereotypically French music, we had, for example, the French national anthem played on an accordion. You know, almost anyone exposed to British culture at that time would have spotted, yeah, that's French. Similarly, our, our German music was basically beer keller songs. You know, we had one about, literally, it was about drinking Weisswein and then Rhine. You know, it's really stereotypically German, at least if you're you know, brought up in Britain around about that time. And what we did then was um, this display was, was essentially facing the checkouts. It was only about maybe 10 meters from the back end of the checkouts. So we sat there by um, a little free taxi phone, you know, with bags stuffed with shopping and, of, you know, inviting people to draw the assumption that, you know, we were not psychologists observing what they're doing. In fact, we're just shoppers waiting for our taxi to arrive. And literally, we were just counting the number of bottles of wine sold. And yeah, what we found was that when we played the, the very stereotypically German music, then German wine outsold French by five bottles to one. Whereas when we played the stereotypically German music, then German wine outsold French 
by two bottles to one. So in other words, it, it, it averaged out at about three and a third bottles to one in favour of whichever country's music was playing there and then. So something as simple as changing the music played when consumers make a purchase actually had a dramatic effect on the wine they bought. And this wasn't just a small change in behaviour, it was huge. People were three times more likely to purchase wine when the associated music was played. I went on to ask Adrian why something like music had such a strong effect on purchase behaviour. You know, people like music and people respond to music because they can assign meaning to it. But crucially, what this theory said was that you get this meaning from music because music activates, if you like, one little pocket of knowledge, one node of knowledge in your head. But because, of course, the brain is so densely interconnected, that in turn raises the activity or raises the salience of all the other kind of related knowledge. So given that, it makes perfect sense that if you make people think in very general terms of, if you like, French things by playing French music, then that in turn raises the thought and the salience of all other things associated with France. It might guide your attention to French wine versus German wine. And it arguably even, well, I think we found it makes you more predisposed to actually behave in that way as well. This is a really interesting observation. Adrian's noted how the things associated with a product can have an effect on how likely you are or somebody else is to buy that product. Now, this sounds simple, but funnily enough, it's, it's not something that every marketer or every business person actually thinks about. In fact, not acknowledging the power of your product's associations can have a really crippling effect on its success. To help explain, I'm going to tell a story about margarine in the 1940s. So back then in the 1940s, the margarine industry was seriously struggling. Despite it being far cheaper than other spreads, shoppers just didn't buy it. They always bought butter instead. In fact, consumers were eight times more likely to buy butter. Good Luck Margarine was the leading American margarine brand at the time, and they were trying to reverse this trend. So in the 1940s, they hired a Ukrainian psychologist called Louis Cheskin to understand what caused these low sales. Cheskin first discovered that the reason people didn't like margarine wasn't actually because of its taste. In fact, in blind taste tests, many participants preferred margarine, and there was no significant preference for butter at all. He also figured out very early on that it wasn't the price. Margarine was significantly cheaper than butter all across America. So he decided instead to analyse its associations. To do this, he invited housewives to a series of lunchtime lectures. These lectures were preceded by a buffet. Nothing fancy in it, it was just white bread with chilled pats of butter. He then gave a lecture to the housewives, and after the talk, he asked a few non-important questions. He asked, how engaging was the talk? Which topic did you enjoy the most? Did you ask the question you wanted? And finally, the key question, what did you think of the food? Cheskin repeated this experiment six times alternating between serving margarine and butter. When Cheskin served what appeared to be butter, the responses were very positive. And when he appeared to serve margarine, the responses were very negative. They called it oily, they called it gloopy, and they called it bland. But Cheskin had actually switched the products. In his tests, he dyed the margarine yellow and labelled it as butter. And with the butter, he dyed it white and labelled it as margarine. The product the participants were complaining about was actually their much-loved butter, and the product they raved about was their much-hated margarine. 
The purpose of this charade was to prove that the enjoyment of margarine and other products was actually determined by its associations. All of the elements of the experience, including the colour, the smell and even the music played whilst consuming, contributed to our expectations and therefore the taste. Cheskin called this the sensation transference. So by changing the associations of margarine to those of butter, by making it yellow to serving it in a similar packet to butter, he actually changed people's perception of the product. This change had a huge impact. In the 1950s, margarine actually overtook butter in popularity and stayed ahead for 50 years. But it's not just margarine and wine sales. Think about how this could be applied to your business. If you run a cafe, think about the counter you actually sell your cakes on. Funnily enough, marble does better than wood. If you're a software salesperson, think about the type of computer you demo your products on. A brighter and cleaner screen will help you win more deals. And if you're a global brand, think about the associations you build with your advertising. Guinness has seen huge success linking its product with rugby and St. Patrick's Day, two events where you would feel inclined to purchase their product even if you didn't want to. Anyway, back to Adrian, who goes on to explain how this principle can be used to help pick the music you put alongside videos of your products. Like I said, you know, be the first to concede the fundamentals finding it is pretty obvious. You know, play play French music, people buy French stuff. You know, duh, of course they do. You know, people have known that for a long, long time. Well, certainly what, what's interesting is, is the fact that what, what's underlying this is a really well-established theory. And so it's, if you start to explore that theory, you can then start to do some really quite clever things in terms of how you actually use this. So, for example, not long after that, that study with wine sales in the supermarket, we then said, OK, well, if the music is activating the thoughts of certain things and making people think in a certain way, what that should mean is that if the music that's playing in the background to an advert is very clearly linked to some feature of the product, it ought to make it easier to recall those features of the product itself. And so that's, that's the next thing we did. We, we set up um, basically five dummy adverts with different musical backgrounds. In some cases, the music was clearly promoting a particular aspect of the product, and in some cases it wasn't. And what we found is that when, when the music fits a particular aspect of the product, people are more likely to recall that specific feature of the product itself. And all of a sudden, you go from this rather facile statement that, you know, play French music in a shop, people buy French stuff, you know, big deal, so what, who'd have thought it? So all of a sudden saying, okay, so now we've got a direct tool that's theoretically driven. It tells us exactly how we should be using music in advertising. And so it's, you know, the big contribution of this kind of stuff isn't so much, you know, the more fundamental findings, even though they're actually quite surprising. You actually get these out there in real life. It's because they're theoretically driven and there's a proper theory underlying them. You can then say, okay, if we know that we get so far with this theory, what happens if we push it a little bit further? So Adrian's explained how music played during adverts can actually help with product recall as well. In fact, he states that if the music in some way links to your product, it will increase the salience and the chance you'll actually remember it. Of course, it's obvious that French wine needs French music in its ads, but this can be used in a more nuanced way. Think of how British Airways uses a piece of classical music against its product. This perhaps helps people recall the high quality service it provides. Adrian then went on to explain another study which he did which looked at the effectiveness of radio advertisements based on their narrators. Yeah, it, it, it's very, it, it, that's almost, if you like, the, the sister study to the one I mentioned a few minutes ago where, where, we set, where we use different types of music to promote different kind of brand messages, if you like. What, what we did in the voice version of this was, again, draw on the connotations that certain accents will have or certain tones of voice will have. 
And again, it, apart from that, the, the study basically played out the same way. So, for example, we used um, kind of a nice kind of warm, reasonably, well, certainly an American accent, but a nice warm, a nice warm voice. It was clearly reasonably elderly. And we were using that to promote the idea of specifically an American retail bank being trustworthy. And that, that's what we found, because, of course, you know, you take this older voice with these connotations of you know, fundamentally you know, trying, being concerned with you know, the well-being of the world and, you know, and, and um, you know, doing, the right, you know, doing the right thing in life, having a certain level of morality. Mm. And that's what you find. You find that, that people draw that meaning because that's a re- reasonably widely understood inference that a lot of people make. I'm not saying that all people with that voice are like that, of course, they're not, but, you know, but that, that's the inference that a lot of people tend to make. And again, you find that even those, those tone of voice characteristics start to transfer onto the brand itself. Although, again, it comes back, you know, all those studies that we've been talking about all pull from that one single little theory. I think that point really summarises all of Adrian's research so far. Music and soundtracks and narrators, they'll all change the perception people have of your product or service. If you get it right, you'll improve your recall and you'll improve your salience. If you get it wrong, well, you're missing a fantastic consumer psychology nudge. So that's how music can influence purchase decision. But can it influence the perception of time? Adrian thinks it can. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then say that this is now coming from a different theoretical standpoint, if you like, but it's where, where it's fundamentally all drawing from is once again this sense that take a theory that works in the lab, you know, and in this case, these are theories specifically of time perception and perception of how much time has passed but just pull them straight out of the lab and just instantly try and as accurately as you can try and replicate those conditions in a real world setting. So in this particular case, the the kind of theories that we're drawing on, we're talking about how, for example, people have got an internal clock that they use to monitor the passage of time. So you and I, I mean, maybe I'm boring to you to death and you're you're simply staring at the clock saying, God, will this guy ever shut up? But if if instead you are are simply playing close attention, you probably haven't looked at the clock but both of us know that at this point in the conversation, you and I have been talking for about 15 minutes and it's because you've got this little internal clock that's whirring away and, you know, you know, roughly how much time has passed. The interesting thing from the lab research about this little internal clock is that it is anything but perfect. It's pretty good, but it's not great. And in particular, there's a few ways in which you can trick it. Number one, you can distract people's attention from it. So the more immersed you are in something, the less attention you're paying to your internal clock and the harder you find it to all of a sudden estimate how much accurately time has passed. Similarly, you can even go a step further from that. What, what another wonderful bit of research has done, and this isn't me, this is a guy called um, James Kolaris in Cincinnati. What he did was he used another one of these tricks, which we, it's these so-called discrete event models of time, which say if after the event you're trying to reconstruct how much time has passed, what you do is because you can't quite remember accurately how many minutes have gone by, instead what you do is your default position then is to say, okay, I don't know exactly how much time has passed, but three things have happened or four things have happened. And so if four things have happened, more time must have gone by than if instead I only recall two things having happened. So with regard to um, James Kolaris' stuff, what he did was he just got people, this was admittedly in the laboratory, but he got people in there for 16 minutes. And while they were waiting in there, he played them either two types of music. One group of people hear four pieces of music 
each of which is four minutes long, so four by four is 16. Another group of people, though, hear eight pieces of music, each of which is only two minutes long. So eight by two, still 16. But the crucial difference is, is the first group of people, only four events had happened, four songs. Whereas the second group of people, eight events had happened, eight songs. You then ask people afterwards, how long have you been in here for? And the people who have heard eight songs think they've been there for longer because eight things have happened. Whereas the people who heard four songs, they, after the event, say, oh, only four things happened. So, yeah, probably not as long as those other people. So that's the discrete events model. In terms of my one, what we did was um, we tried to distract people's attention from their internal timer. So we did this in a gym, in um, the university gym in um, Leicester in the UK, where I was working at the time. So as people came in, we asked them if they could, you know, we took the clocks down off the wall and we said to the people, similarly, can you, can you um, remove your watch, please? So they had no direct way of telling the time while they were in there. But then what we did while we were in there, we played people either kind of stereotypical gym music, which is, you know, kind of some sort of variant of dance music and rock, you know, just typical gym kind of music. But on other occasions, we also played some really unusual music. So we started playing basically greatest hits of country and Western. So it's all very popular stuff, you know, stuff that sold well, but profoundly unusual to hear in a gym. You know, it's not very often you'll hear, I don't know, can we win it, stand by your man while, you know, whilst you're pumping iron. So what we read then did as people left, before we gave them their watches back, we first of all said to them, how long do you think you've been in here? And what we found was that the people who'd been exposed to the country music, the really unusual music, you know, their, their estimation of how much time had passed was much more inaccurate than was the estimation of people who had heard the normal music. In other words, the, the unusual music had drawn their attention away, and this is what they told us when we interviewed them afterwards. They said the music really distracted them. They spent a fair amount of time in there thinking, why the blazes is this gym playing country and western? And as a consequence of that, they weren't monitoring the passage of time. And so their time estimate was inaccurate. It was neither under nor over. It just, it's just overall just more inaccurate. So you know, both of those are really nice examples, I think, of how you can take these, these very mainstream laboratories from, you know, in this case, cognitive psychology, very hard experimental cognitive psychology, but you know, put them in a musical context in terms of the way in which people actually listen to music these days. And all of a sudden, they start to get really interesting in terms of their implications. So, for example, in terms of my study in the gym, well, if you've got people who are queuing, let's say they're at the supermarket checkouts, what that finding tells you is if you play them some slightly weird music whilst they're there, they at least won't know quite how long they've been kept waiting for. Same thing would apply on hold if you're waiting on the phone. Similarly, James Kolaris' finding about, you know, playing four songs or eight songs and the number of things that you think have passed. That's got all kinds of implications for people's perceptions of, uh, well, that's, for example, listening to the radio. You know, how much time has passed since the last advert break? Because those findings would suggest that if you play eight short songs rather than four longer songs, people think that should think that the gaps between the ad breaks are longer. One of the absolute, to my, I think possibly the first study within you know, the field of music and consumer behavior, music and consumer behavior was done by a guy in the States called Ronald Milliman. And what he did in, in two studies in 1982 and 1986 was look at the effects of music in, first of all, a supermarket and then a restaurant. And what he did in the supermarket was he played, I think it was, the supermarket was loud versus soft music. And what he did there was he literally, you know, in different days, he played either loud music or quiet music. So you know, it was fast versus slow music. And he found that when he played the fast music, the people took less time to get from point A to point B in the supermarket. You know, he, you know, he effectively timed them like it was a running race. Play fast music, they go around quicker. 
Whereas he found that when they played slow music, people take longer to go around the store. But because they take longer to go around the store, they're browsing more. And because they're browsing more, they spent more. And it was significantly more from memory. It was around about a third more when he played slow music versus the fast music. Then this follow-up study in the restaurant, you know, just basically did the same thing again. And he found in that case, when you played fast music, people finished their meals more quickly. I happen to remember that, you know, the groups in the fast music condition took only 46 minutes at the table. Whereas when he played slow music, groups took well over 50 minutes. I think it was about 55 minutes to, you know, get away from the table. And again, crucially, in the slow music condition, not only did they sit there for longer, but they ended up spending more money on drinks from the bar. And you can explain all of this just in terms of you know, the fundamental effects that music has on, on, on human physiology. Slow music calms you down. Fast music leaves you feeling more energized. And so you know, we, of course, you know, everyone knows this. It's, it's been common knowledge for you know, centuries, you know, millennia, that music has these specific effects. But it's just interesting when you start to think about how those kind of effects might well play out in commercial circumstances. So you can actually distract someone's internal clock with music and that means you can make it easier or harder to get consumers to spend time doing something. If you want your consumers to spend more time at the supermarket, you can play slow music and that will get them to spend up to three times more time there. And if you work at a call centre and you've got people on hold, you can play unusual music which distracts their internal clock and makes them forget how long they've been on hold for and if you're organizing radio ads well you should play four long ads rather than eight short ones because that will make people feel like the ads are going quicker now we're almost out of time with adrian but just before he went i asked him something slightly different i wondered if he could turn back the clock and restart his career if he'd do anything different here's what he said (laughs) i wrote in 1996 in the preface to a book i was editing at the time that, and this is almost a direct quote, the technology even exists to download music to a laptop computer on a pay-per-play basis. Boy, do I wish I'd acted on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. So that was Adrian North. He's shared some fascinating insights on how music influences consumers, particularly how music can enhance the associations consumers have with a product. So French music actually gets people buying French wine, but also lavish classical music encourages people to expect a better experience, like, for example, British Airways. He's also explained how the same can be true for radio presenters on radio adverts as well. And he went on to explain how our concept of time is actually influenced 
influenced by the type of music we hear. So if you want people to stay at your restaurant or if you want people to watch more of your marketing video, play slower, softer music. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Nudge, the Consumer Psychology Podcast.